Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, this is episode number 30. I can't believe it. I can't believe we made it to three. So. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, so, not, not, not to say 3-0, right? Not, not to mention 3-0. I didn't, exactly. I didn't expect to make it to 0-3. Mm-hmm. But not only is that the milestone for us, being 30 episodes in, but we also crossed the 10,000 listens mark this uh, week. What? I know. Not too bad for a little niche uh, garage band podcast. Uh, exactly. You know. Wonderful. That's such great news. You know, we're just based on legal information with a slant toward technology and management. Well, <laughs> apparently there's lots of people that are interested in that particular topic. So, Thank you all for for contributing. This is this. I'm so happy now. <laughs> it's made my day. And you know, we we couldn't do it without our listeners. Uh, well, you know, technically we could, but it yeah. wouldn't be nearly as much fun. Not, not nearly as much fun. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Thank you for listening and subscribing. You are subscribed to the podcast, right? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Tell a couple of friends about us and share the joy. Absolutely. So, Marlene, I got to I got to mention it. I can't believe the groundhog got it wrong again this year. I woke up near freezing this morning in in Houston. Wow! 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 It's funny though. It's like you're talking about near freezing. It's like, well, you know, you saw you saw the pictures that I I said of of the snow that we got. So. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel for you, but not, not, yeah. not that much. Well, <laughs> if you didn't feel for me, then our guest today, who's uh, Debbie Ginsburg from Chicago Kent University, she definitely didn't feel the pain of uh, near freezing after going through. It doesn't even feel bad for me. <laughs> double digit uh, negative temperatures in Chicago this year. So Debbie's going to join us today and talk about the value of women in legal technology. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a great discussion. Yeah. Well, Marlene, this week I got to do my talk with the University of Oklahoma law students. Uh, did you make them smart? Well, yes, of course. Of course yeah. I did. That's, that's the right answer. <laughs> and, and in case you were wondering, yes, I did use the green screen and background again. So I wasn't wondering. I, I knew you would do that. <laughs> it, it was kind it's of fun. The, it's the new toy. It's the it new toy. New toy. It is a new toy. So um, I actually took a picture of their great reading room at the law school and put it behind me. So really, I was just down the hall from them. Oh, see, it just it felt like you were there. It was great to talk with the students and see the, I mean, they just had an enthusiasm about learning, not just about thinking like a lawyer, which all law students can do, but also how to think about what the processes are and actual technologies involved in practicing law. Thanks to our, epi- I think it's episode nine guest, uh, Kenton Bryce from OU, for inviting me back uh, this semester to talk with the students. Um, they're doing a lot of good work there at OU. Yeah, they certainly are. That's, I think, one of the leaders um, um, you know, you always hear things that, that are coming out of out of OU. So, uh, well done, everybody. Well, let's uh, jump right into our information inspirations. Well, this gets to be the fun part because I've got some and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I will have some. All right, I'll kick this one off, Marlene. So, there was an ABA Journal article I think it was self-care isn't selfish and can actually help your performance was the name of it. Amen. <laughs> it was by uh, Jenna Cho. And Jenna explains that taking the time to recharge your batteries isn't a bad thing. And in fact, it's really a productive thing to do. 
So she talked with one of our attorneys here, Jackson Walker. So she talked with Stephanie Sparks, who's a partner up in our Dallas office, about how waiting to take care of yourself until you have the time really means that you never end up taking care of yourself. So the article focuses on women, especially those coming back from maternity leave. You know, moms tend to take care of everyone else first. And for mommy lawyers, that also means they take care of their coworkers and their clients before they take care of themselves. I say this problem occurs probably not at the, the same level, but um, it, it occurs in male lawyers as well. And I don't think it's so much as wanting to take care of people, but rather they want to take care of problems before they take care of themselves. And so, you know, we're also very prone just to ignore problems. And I can tell you, as someone with uh, two mesh stents in my uh, heart arteries, you know, sometimes you forget to take care of yourself. So, you know, the moral of the story is uh, take some time, take care of yourself and take the time to listen to your body and your mind. And remember that you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself first. You know, I was going to say something about being a mom, but you totally one up me with the, with the stents. So I, you know, I, 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 you know, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> so Greg, we, we gush about other podcasts on this show. I mean, there are people, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we also, we have a bit of bias about the medium, <laughs> but I listened to a podcast last week that pushed all the buttons. Jason Barnwell on his Business of Law podcast interviewed Kate Ross, the Assistant General Counsel of Gaming at Microsoft. And does that sound like the best job ever? It does. It does. It does. You know, before I even get to the, the substance of the interview, first of all, she has a rod of resurrection from Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I just missed the D&D craze, but my sister and her friends played. So... I read all the books about all the characters and the weapons because, you know, that's what I do. Of course. I think, I think Kate said she had a dwarf axe with a poem written in Elvish on it as well. <laughs> now, I, I may have made that up, but even so, it's an excellent rumor to start. Yes, it is. She covered so many important points in her interview psychological safety and successful teams, which we've talked about. You know, you have to trust your teammates. Yeah. Importance of a growth mindset, how information overload impacts us, the importance of listening, authenticity, humility and leadership, why incentivizing people is important, social contracts at work, and why you should be transparent and show the warts and all in all your projects. It was wonderful. And I just want to say thank you, Jason and Kate, for a truly great listen. Um, the one thing that I really liked, they were talking about Microsoft apparently does a mid-year question where they, mm -hmm. where they have a group work. You know, it's basically a group project right. uh, that they give to teams. One of the things that Jason said that I thought was just spot on, he was talking about culture. One of the things about culture was that, and, I, and I've said this before, is that, you know, culture means different things for different people. And if you try to have a top-down culture, Jason said it felt like he had inherited someone else's shoes when it came to culture. <laughs> and I thought, my God, that's just like the perfect way to, to say it when it's a top-down type culture. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. It, was, it's, it is a must-listen if you're looking at leadership within your organization. Absolutely. 
So my next inspiration, our friend and first guest on this podcast, Zena Applebaum, wrote a blog post about the human data interaction and that regardless of what people may think about data, it's the humans who really still make the decisions. In her Three Geeks post, she said, data doesn't make decisions. It seems obvious, but I think that in all AI, robo-lawyer hype, oh, in all the AI, let me just read it through once. Um, In her Three Geeks post, she said, data doesn't make decisions. It seems obvious, but I think that in all the AI robo-lawyer hype, we need to be reminded people are still the central to decision-making. Data in its various forms and all ranges of analysis from SWOT to AI algorithms still does require human intelligence and interaction to get at all the nuance and understandings and sometimes complex emotional context. Whew, that was a long sentence. <laughs> Apparently, that's how the Canadians write their sentences, really I was long. I say, that, that, that requires like <laughs> yoga breath control. But uh, I love the little insert title she uses for this post. Data doesn't make decisions. Information is quick. Intelligence takes time. And intelligence is for issues. Insights are for people. I feel like we could make a Dr. Seuss book for just those three things. Yeah, I agree. If if you haven't already read Zena's post, I highly, highly recommend it. So my last information inspiration is, I'm going to make it quick. It's about the Obama library sans the library part. Hmm. I wanted to state that I'm not all that happy with what's going on with the Obama presidential library in Chicago. So according to a New York Times article, there's not going to be a physical research library and repository like all the other presidential libraries has. It's going to be this great digital effort, but the decision is catching the ire of librarians, of historians, and of researchers. And the issue seems to be the lack of access to the real documents and the precedent that this sets for future presidents in their libraries. It's hard to say precedent and president in the same sentence. I'm going to say that. <laughs> but you did well. Yes. <laughs> so my word of advice is never tick off librarians, historians, and researchers. They're a surprisingly forceful bunch. And I always hearken back to when uh, John Ashcroft, during the George W. Bush administration, called us radical militant librarians. So, <laughs> so be careful out there. I, I enjoy that more than I should. <laughs> Was there any explanation as to why they're not going to have the, the real documents, the actual documents? My guess is someone somewhere thought that it was just a good idea to save that space. Cool. Yeah, that it was. And, and you know, you got to think that it does sound modern to not have a physical library. But one of the one of the things that they've learned is that other presidential libraries have not only created physical library, but it has caused other materials to be brought in because researchers or historians have been able to identify related documents that could be brought in to add to the collection. So we'll see how it goes, but uh, everyone I've talked to is really not happy with this. And that wraps up our Information Inspirations. All right, Marlene, let's jump into our interview with Debbie Ginsberg, who's the Educational Technology Librarian at Chicago Kent Library.
Joining us today is Debbie Ginsberg, Educational Technology Librarian at Chicago Kent Law Library. Thanks for joining us, Debbie. Happy to be here. So we asked Debbie to be on because she was a recent speaker at the Women in Legal Tech Conference held at Chicago Kent last week. And Debbie was also featured in a recent Legal Tech News article from Law.com entitled, Where Are All the Women in Legal Tech? So Debbie, let me just cut to the chase. Where are all the women in legal tech? So I have a kind of a weird perspective on this because everywhere I look, there are women in legal tech. Now, part of the reason may be because the great free conferences I get to attend here at Chicago Kent, the people who put on the conference, including Janders Dean and uh, Dan Katz in the Law Lab, do make sure that it include a lot of women in legal tech. For me, oh, they're, they're starting new businesses and they are doing big startups in Chicago and they are part presidents of 1871, which is a sort of legal tech incubator here in Chicago. Now, if you look at the numbers, for, again, from the, the law.com article, you'll see that my reality doesn't reflect the actual reality because there's not a lot of women. It's In tech, the founders tend to be six to one male to female. And in law, it's some 14% of the owners of legal tech are female. They also tend to not get a lot of the capital available to it. 1% for minority women, 2% for non-minority women. That's what I was going to say. A lot of the VC money is not making its way to women in, in tech. Right. So if they're mm-hmm. finding other ways and, and other ways to go about it, usually sort of starting on the ground and using their network and the other resources available to them rather than VC capital. But we're seeing more of them all the time. A lot of them are turning to legal tech because when I talk to the women, they perceive a problem, then they decide, okay, no one else is fixing this problem. Let me fix this problem. I was just at the ABA Tech Show. You've got the Startup Alley. And one of the first things in Startup Alley is something called, I think it was Happy Divorce owned by a woman, managed by a woman. She handles all this. She was in family law. Oh, hello, divorce, right? Hello, Uh divorce. Hello, divorce. Hello, divorce. Correct. Mm -hmm. She was trying to solve this problem of, okay, how do I make this excruciating process? And and I used to be a family law attorney as well, work much more efficiently. And I was very impressed with what she had because if I was a client or as an attorney, being able to get all the information in one place would have solved a lot of problems. And so that's what I'm seeing with the women in legal tech is they are really trying to focus on a lot of problem solving solutions and aiming for that market is the underrepresented market. So, you know, we hear a lot about access to justice, the fact that many people in the middle class and in the working class don't have access to to legal help for common legal problems. And I see a lot of women creating things in that space. You mentioned Startup Alley. I'm assuming that is a place where most of the startups are centrally located. What What's the startup alley? So at the ABA Tech Show, they try to feature startups. They do a competition to see which ones they're going to feature. There's usually one that wins. I forget which one this year. And then they get to be part of the expo. The expo is one of my favorite things about the tech show because you can talk to the vendors and see what it is they're doing. And uh, there's one wall that's dedicated just to the startups. They're there. They're able to present. They're able to demo. They're able to close deals. And they get a lot of exposure just by being at the tech show. They're now engaged with the audience that are going to be most interested in working with them. ILTA, uh, which I love, tends to serve your big firms, but the ABA Tech Show serves the small and medium-sized firms that are more likely to be engaged with these kinds of startups. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I get into kind of a, a Twitter debate about, let's see, Legal Week and Tech Show about being one being too focused toward uh, big law firms and big businesses. But there is a lot out there, especially with related to the bar associations that focus more on small law or medium-sized, uh, anywhere from solo small firm all the way up to, to mid-sized law firm. So, And actually, some of the vendors are actually sort of looking at that model as well, ones that have sort of more historically looked at, at big law. Um, they are kind of turning their, their eyes towards this new market. So, you know, I think you're going to see more of uh, the big law vendors, you know, in that venue. That'd be good to see. So, Debbie, can you tell us a little bit more about the Women in Legal Tech Conference? What did you get out of it? What do you think others could get out of it? And what was the message this conference was trying to convey? One of the exciting things for me was one of our students was a speaker. So I liked its inclusiveness, including everyone from so many different aspects of legal tech, which then showed the participants there that legal tech for women starts in the school. It's in places that you don't expect. And um, we're seeing women are trying all kinds of different ways to approach their space in tech. So someone be, you know, you've got in the article, Joy Heathrush, of course, she's the current CEO of ILTSA, and she has, you know, her her 10 commandments for success, which, you know, is sort of set towards a, a higher leadership level. Then you had other people talking about, all right, let's think about the language of hiring, which I found really profound because, you know, there's language that says you're looking for someone intelligent, so then more men apply. Or you're looking for someone who's dedicated, so more women apply. So being aware of how the culture that you're presenting from your, your organization gets reacted to by others will bring in the kinds of people that you're looking for. So I like that it covered so many different aspects of how women in tech interact within that entire space. That's so interesting because it's sort of a very non-tech concept in terms of like the wording of things, and yet it has a big impact on gets a seat at the table. Right. A lot of it wasn't necessarily about the technology itself, but interacting in that space. The Janders Dean will talk about blockchains and things like that, but here it's sort of more about people's experiences being in legal tech and how they're problem solvers. Again, problem solving, I think, being one of the big themes of this. My other theme, which I put on Twitter, was to quote Elastigirl from The Incredibles, leave the saving of the world to the men. I don't think so. Um, so. <laughs> Wise words indeed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mentorship came up a lot, both mentorship within the community and actually reaching out to people who aren't even in law school yet and, and forming bonds with them so they understand this is a community that they can be part of, both as, as people who are starting to grow up and when they become part of the job market. So again, it was a lot about the culture, at least that's the, my big takeaway, and maybe a little bit less about the tech because we knew we were all going to the, or a lot of us were planning to go to the ABA tech show where we knew we'd get the tech part of things. So Debbie, you mentioned that you know opportunities kind of come on, on, in unexpected places. Do, do you have an example of that that you can share? A lot. There was a lot of talk about working with girls who code. So that was not something I expected to come up as people seeking opportunities. So like I said, going expanding the, the idea of women in legal tech to go beyond just the narrow sector of lawyers who are working in legal tech, but looking for other opportunities. I'm not sure if that answers your question the way you intended, 
but that was one of the, the opportunities that, to me, uh, surprised me. Opportunities they talked about were opportunities that people were aware of. Again, like solving problems that, that, that we knew of and coming up with different approaches to that. Going further and reaching the culture beyond just lawyers, just techies, just women to incorporate more of the community. That at large, that I, I found both intriguing and full of a lot of possibilities that I, I want to be thinking about going forward. And another thing that you brought up that, that I found interesting is, is I just recently went to the Solid Conference and you were talking about that a lot of, of presentations sort of centered around sort of problem solving and, and you know, coming up with solutions. And one of the things that I heard at the Solid Conference was that uh, United Lex is partnering with different law schools to basically not teach the technology per se, but sort of teach critical thinking about technology and business and how it can solve problems. So it seems that there's sort of a common theme running there. That's been a discussion in law schools, especially. We want to be able to teach the different technologies, but we want them, uh, the students to also understand that part of their ethical obligations, now 36 states, I'm sure soon will be everyone uh, going forward, is to do that critical thinking about technology and it's not just going to be just this technology works for me just or, or not, but what does impact does this technology have on the greater community, the greater environment? Who can benefit this from this technology? Who is being excluded? Of course, you want to consider accessibility options as well. We're trying to integrate this in, as we teach in law school, and I've seen a lot of discussions about this within the, the legal academic community. Just in case uh, someone doesn't understand what SOLID means, there is, it stands for Summit on Legal Innovation and Disruption, and I believe they just had the conference in San Francisco. Is that right, Marlene? That's correct. Hey, one other thing that you mentioned, Debbie, was your school's relationship with Janders Dean. And I just noticed, I want to just kind of put this out there, on their Twitter page this week, they are presenting 180 suggestions on women speakers that are qualified speakers for conferences on legal tech. You would know. It's really pushing the boundaries out there to stop the what are commonly referred to as mantles, which is the all-male panels that you see at the conferences. So hat tip to them. I'm, I'm gonna, actually going to put a link to their Twitter account on the show notes just to, to highlight that. Yeah, Ed Waters all, uh, from Fastcase also has a policy, no mantles. He always, if he's speaking, speaks with a woman. Apparently, he was upset, because, not upset, upset, but the his, the woman speaker for tech show couldn't make it. So he said, wait, I'm by myself and I always have a woman. <laughs> you should have jumped up on the stage with him. I wasn't there. But someone else <laughs> I think I was speaking. Though again, at the ABA, I don't see as many women as I'm used to seeing in the other conferences. I mean, I noted in my speech that Gina Grady uh, note, said that 75% of AALL, American Association of Law Libraries, uh, members are women. So when we go to those conferences, those speakers tend to be women. Cali Computer Assisted Legal Technology puts off its conference every year. Many of those speakers are women too. So that's what I'm used to seeing. It's a little surprising going to another kind of conference where, wait, the women speakers aren't here. Or when I go to, as I said, I go to Jandrzej's conferences here, they know of the 180 women that are more than qualified to speak because they use them. So their, their money is where their mouth is. They bring these speakers to the conferences. I've seen it. I was going to say, we, we haven't had a problem with getting highly qualified women tech leaders on this show. So if we can do it. <laughs> if we can do it. <laughs> yeah. Anyone can do it. Yeah, if we can get them on our 
garage band podcast and I think anyone can. That's right. Debbie, as a law librarian, what are you bringing to the table when it comes to tech that people might not realize? So my theme for when I was speaking at the, the Women in Tech conference is law librarians, we are that bridge between technologies and how our users interact with them. And we all have different approaches. So in a law firm, they may be offering different kinds of training for the different kinds of resources they have. In a law school, some of us teach whole classes. I uh, am an embedded librarian. So I go to the different classes where technology is relevant. And I explain how they might use technology to make what they are doing right now more efficient. I'll be talking today to someone else. All right, you're doing some research. Here is how you can annotate your research a little more efficiently than printing things out and uh, highlighting with a highlighter, giving them tools that they didn't already have. And that's what we are doing as law librarians is, is looking for those opportunities to help our users make use of the research technology and any other kinds of tools that are in our purview, which today is really large, to make them more efficient lawyers, more efficient scholars, more efficient teaching, more efficient students, more efficient for uh, clients, anything to help them get to uh, concentrate on getting to the legal result and not let the technology get in the way. I, for one, can say that I will be sad if highlighters go the way of the dinosaur. (laughs) They're not. You know. Just don't highlight everything. Or consider other ways of highlighting, you know, if you don't want to print out. That is not efficient. That is not efficient. (laughs) Colorful, but not efficient. So your your article mentions that about 75% of the members of the American Association of Law Libraries are women, Mm -hmm. and that we're not just updating books any longer. What does being in a career that attracts female professionals mean for the entire profession of law librarianship? And what does that mean for the entire legal industry? That's a big question, I know. Yeah, it is a big question. I've been thinking about it like, well, this is just, yeah. Well, you know, librarianship itself tends to, you know, attract women. And part of it may be, I love my job. I get to do all these kinds of different things, but I also get a certain amount of work-life balance, uh, which I appreciate. The other thing, and this would attract anyone, but apparently it attracts women in, uh, in particular, is every day is something new, and I get to learn something and teach it. Uh, at the same time. So that's been really exciting. But yeah, I think we're affected by the fact that librarianship itself attracts a lot of women. Therefore, a lot, you know, this, the branches from my experience tend to, the different aspects tend to attract more women, though some will attract more men than others. But law librarianship, I think for, for some women, it's been said like, well, I, there's a way that law firms and, and legal and practicing law is structured that is, can be very confrontational and doesn't necessarily go toward getting results. And I think a lot of women, uh, in my experience, like being in a, uh, still being involved with law, but in such a way that is much more results and service focused. So that's one big attraction. What this means for the entire legal industry, we've seen articles from time to time that law librarians are in trouble, that law libraries are, are not being funded. You know, it's easy to say, oh, it's just, you know, those people are working there and they're not really a big part of our organization. Firms and other organizations that do that tend to find themselves in trouble uh, really quickly and then bring the librarians back. One of the things that we've been working on is establishing ourselves as 
these information professionals, knowledge managers, resource trainers, competitive intelligence. We, we change our expertise and we make that expertise known to the rest of our organization, which many of us have been working really hard on, especially in the last you know, 10, 15 years. We become an integral part in how the day-to-day information flow works within the legal industry. Yeah. And I know one of the things that I've looked for is law librarians tend to be the people that are some of the first users of new products. They also understand the ins and outs, the questions that are going to be asked and the results that they should expect back. I've always gone to the law librarians to really be my the front line when it comes to what does this tech going to do for us? For me, that was one of the things that when I saw that 75% of the members of AAAL, and I think that's probably pretty accurate with the whole profession, are women. It gives you that diversity that you need to kind of experiment to see how, how things will act in the real world. So Debbie, I know that Chicago Kent is known for its focus on technology, and you have people like Dan Katz is now there and is a well-known name in the forward-thinking circle of legal technology. Um, and I also noticed he's in Scotland this week and somehow or another, if he, if he needs somebody to like carry his golf clubs around from conference to conference, you know, let him, let him know I'm available. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, the library there at Chicago Kent, what's its role in helping students understand the changing landscape that's going on within legal technology? We're a smaller library these days. Um, so there's a couple of focuses we have. One is research librarians are focused on making sure that not only do students understand the resources they have, but they understand how resources function. So we're even starting to talk about things like, what are the algorithms behind the resources and what are the resources trying to get you to do? So when they have to pick their own resources as they join small and medium firms, they'll have that skill. Then we have two technology librarians, uh, Emily Barney and myself, and we have been working for many years to make sure that our all, as many of our students at this point, all of our students have a good grounding in the fundamental technologies they're going to need for everyday work. So it took us a while, but now we are in every single 1L class, making sure each student understands how Word can help them complete all the assignments that they are given as 1Ls. So we'll start with here are styles, and then we'll talk about table of contents, and eventually we'll talk about the dreaded table of authorities. But this is going to every single 1L. They all get it. We also try to get into the upper level, uh, which is also required 2L and 3L classes, to introduce concepts such as cross-referencing or timekeeping. Law Library, we are handling sort of some of the day-to-day stuff, and Dan Katz gets to do the fun things like blockchain and programming and uh, legal analytics and Six Sigma and stuff like that. So students at Chicago Kent can, you know, will be given technology and if they that they can use to do their work, and if they choose to, they can explore some of the more emerging technologies that are affecting legal practice from now until the foreseeable future. That's interesting because I was just speaking to a group at the University of Oklahoma yesterday. They're doing a lot. And bringing up the issue of, 
you know, you're going to spend about 90% of your time in Outlook, Word, Excel, PDFs, those sorts of things. And the better you have a concept on those basic tools, the better your life's going to be. And it opens up those opportunities for these more advanced technologies as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and things like that. Right. You got to know the, you got to know the basics. <laughs> you got to walk before you run, right? <laughs> All before you walk. I also am emphasizing everything we're teaching them is designed to help them get paid since they're all interested in that. Well, that's an interesting concept. That's very practical. See, (laughs) not all about theory in law school. (laughs) No, I'm the practical one. I'm like, do you want to get paid? Because you're not going to get paid for wrestling with Microsoft Word for three hours. So good point. Debbie, is there anything going on at at Chicago Kent in the immediate future that we should know about? You know, keep an eye on the Law Lab page, and I'll provide Greg the link to that because a lot of exciting conferences and things are announced there. Uh, There should be another fintech conference coming up this fall, and I always get a lot out of the fintech conferences. And again, they try to be very diverse in who's speaking and the different topics that are discussed, and that will be very practical technology focused, what's going on, what you need to know. Hey, Debbie, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. This has been uh, Debbie Ginsberg, Educational and Technology Librarian at Chicago Kent Law Library. Debbie, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thanks for having me. Well, it was good to talk with Debbie there at uh, Chicago Kent. And I know I really wanted to go to that Women in Tech conference last week. Um, I mm-hmm. couldn't go, but I, I did recommend that a few people I knew in Chicago attend. And everybody said it was it was just perfect. Yeah, I was kind of watching some of the, the tweets on that. Everybody seemed to to really get something valuable out of it and really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Debbie Ginsberg at Chicago Kent University Law School for joining us today and talking about the value of women in legal tech. Yeah, thank you, Debbie. And everyone, please remember to subscribe to the Geek and Review on your favorite podcast platform. You can contact us on Twitter at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert with your comments or suggestions. And thanks again to Jerry David DeSicca for his awesome music that you hear on the podcast. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Love the music. All right, Marlene, I'm off to South by Southwest next week. So don't I think- rub it in. Stop. Uh, Just stop. Uh, and then you're going to talk <laughs> about it on the next podcast. So, uh, when I'm recording next week, it will be from South by. Whatever. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Bye.